Hey, welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board got its first case in a school setting of COVID-19. And Western University in London, 28 cases right now. We'll delve into that. The Trudeau government seems fairly confident they're going to be able to avoid a fall election. But with the throne speech coming up, it's still a possibility. And renters can rest slightly easier now for the upcoming year. The Ontario government has new legislation dealing with that. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's get back to what's on everybody's minds these days about COVID and about uh, social distancing and about our bubbles and everything else. Uh, the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board has got their first case in a school setting, a positive case of COVID. Uh, in London, of course, there's a great deal of concern about uh, the spread that has happened over the well this entire week, really, which uh, seems to have started with a, a group of uh, Western University students. So where are we on this, and, and how concerned should we be? Get a couple of different perspectives on this for you. I'm going to bring Paul Johnson into the conversation, the Director of Emergency Center for the uh, City of Hamilton here, uh, looking to get after the COVID situation with us. Paul, thanks for the time. Glad you could jump in today. Yeah, great to be with you, Bill. Uh, we know the Premier yesterday, and he was awfully frustrated. He has been for some time now as he's looking at some of these increasing numbers, and he did put some restrictions uh, on three areas, Toronto, Peel, and Ottawa, uh, but basically said to everybody else, uh, you guys are on warning. Uh, if it happens to you too, uh, you're going to get grouped into that. Where are we in the Hamilton area vis-a-vis numbers? I know there's, there's been some upticks here too. Are you concerned about that? Uh, so you're always concerned about upticks, but our upticks have been very uh, minimal and continue to be. And, and uh, a few days ago, actually, uh, Mayor Eisenberger was asking the question, you know, is, is public health uh, thinking about some additional measures, looking at that? And, and the communications that I had with public health is not at this point. I mean, yes, there's an uptick. So, you know, we're, we were at the sort of the dog days of summer looking at one or two cases a day. And and it, you know, maybe three or four or four or five, and some days we're up in the seven or eight range. We we don't feel that it's, uh, and public health doesn't feel, I should say, that uh, that we're at that point where uh, you're looking at the caseloads in, in Peel Region and Toronto and Ottawa where uh, they're much, much larger, even if you uh, factored in their population difference, much, much higher case numbers than, than uh, we have here in Hamilton. So uh, I would say right now it's concern monitor and uh, you know hopefully we don't have to take additional actions or request the province uh, around that uh, that that we can manage this in Hamilton but it is coming down to behavior bill uh, if you look at uh, what happened at Western University and I love their their depiction graphically about how that you know few people turned into you know close to 30 people uh, this is about behavior it's the things we're doing it's the letting down of our guard that is what is uh, seems to be the evidence of how this is spreading uh, and going from being one or two people to you know maybe 10 12 or in the case of western university of western ontario close to 30. Yeah, we're going to get an update on the Western situation in just a few minutes. I'm frustrated about this, Paul, and you've been tracking this since day one, obviously, uh, here in this area anyway, and I know you're looking at the national numbers as well. Uh, there's a global news uh, poll that was just released uh, that was done by Ipsos. Uh, 75% of the people said, look, if it gets bad, shut everything down again like we did before. Now, I don't I don't want to go there. I know you don't want to go there. But if that's how people are feeling about this, and if they're, again, 75% say they're almost sure that there's going to be a second wave, why the non compliance why all of a sudden are people saying out of heck with it we can we can have 75 80 or a thousand people we can do whatever we want i don't really need to wear a mask you know that's that's all just you know superfluous stuff they're they're concerned about it the overwhelming majority of the population seems concerned about it Uh, but as you say we, we, we don't seem to be following the rules as much as we were before 
Well, I'll, I'll be blunt. This kind of, you know, hey, let us do what we want and just shut it back down if we need to is a, is a really, really, in my mind, bad approach to take. Because I don't think individuals realize just how catastrophic it would be if we have to go back to what happened in March and April. Um, you know, I, I don't know all the data, but what I hear all the time is that a number of businesses could not survive another shutdown. That, um, you know, their, their, even government's ability to support everybody through another full shutdown of this country, uh, you know, we're going to be stretched on every front. And, and I think the attitude has to be, how do we manage life with COVID for however many months or potentially a year or two that we have to go through this rather than taking this approach of, oh, back off, will you let me do what I want? And if it gets really bad, then just shut us all back down again. I think that is a, a very dangerous approach uh, to, to take. And really, I think, you know, it's a lot of we're six and a bit months into this bill. And, and obviously, people are tired of it. There's frustration. Uh, people want to get back to doing the kinds of things that they enjoy. But you know, we've shifted these days. The question in my mind isn't so much can we technically do things because most of the things are open. Uh, there are, you know, loosened restrictions on things. I think the better question is should we be doing these certain things? You know, should you be out with friends and when somebody says, hey, this is a great uh, new flavor of tea I'm drinking, should you take a sip of the tea as well? The answer is no. Like, come on. And, and that's what we saw in some of these cases. It's sharing drinks. It's sharing food. It's not wearing masks and sitting close to folks and it's not your social circle it's it's happening in public settings and it's a it's a very bad recipe for us being able to keep where we are and and keep the level of reopening where it is at the moment well, and therein lies the frustration, and, and I remember how meticulous many of us were back in, in the springtime. Uh, you know, even before we were told to wear masks, a lot of us were doing it. We wore gloves, I and mean, you know, when I used to go pump gas in my car, I mean, I'd have gloves on. I was doing every little thing, and a lot of other people were doing the same sort of thing. And, and they seem to have relaxed that. You're absolutely right, Paul. Uh, but the, nothing's changed. The only thing that's changed is because we were doing that, we flattened the curve, and we kept the numbers down. Well, as soon as we stopped doing that, the numbers go back up. It's like, you know, you go on a diet and lose 40 pounds and figure, okay, I can eat pizza six times a week. You're going to put the weight back on. I mean, you know, I know it's human nature, but, man, where where is our common sense here? And you said it best. Nothing's changed. Uh, we do not have enough people that have, uh, you know, I, and I don't know all the science on, on immunity for those that have, uh, have been COVID positive, but even if there was, let's just say there was immunity if you, if you were COVID-19 positive. We don't have enough people that have been positive to have some kind of herd immunity yet. Uh, that's been fairly clear. We're, we're, not, we're not in any different situation. You said it very well, other than the fact that we're not, um, we're not really uh, behind uh, the times with this as we were in March and April, catching up to this virus. We know the virus, we know how it spreads, and we know the things that can stop it. And I would say that, you know, I do a lot of things now in my life that, that are a lot more normal, but I follow the safety and I follow the public health things, and they're not that complicated. And so the things that I may not do now um, are so limited. Putting on a mask is not that big a deal. Uh, you know, choosing not to, you know, be in, in really close contact with people for long periods of time that, that I don't know or, or aren't part of my social circle is not that complicated. And, you know, I think we we really do need to, you know, reinforce these messages that people need to remember the virus is still in this community. As you see with the cases, uh, where they're happening and how they're happening, we're going to continue to see those cases. We want to keep that at those single-digit levels. 
we can ride that through to an immunity strategy. But if we start to see these peaks going up, uh, you'll see what, what has to happen. And places like Toronto and Ottawa and Peel, uh, I know in Toronto, they're contemplating more things. And I, I just think that would be so hard for many people who uh, own businesses, uh, who, whose jobs depends on businesses being open. I would not want to see this go back to the way it was. I got a minute left here, but I got to ask you to comment on something else the premier said the other day, and, and that had to do with enforcement and fines. And now I know there are fines that are on the books for non-compliance. I get that, but most municipalities, and you and I have had this conversation about the Hamilton area too, have been reticent to do that. Figuring, like, like we just want people to to do this. We don't really want to be, you know, harsh about this. Uh, are we at that point right now? Are you having that discussion that hey, maybe we have to crack down? Maybe a few people are going to have to pay those big fines to get the message across. Yeah, and and we're doing that now, uh, and it was the same in the early stages with uh, when yeah. we were early on, a lot of education, but then you hit the point where it's enough education. If you don't know about what you should do to, to stay safe and stop the spread by now, um, uh, we, we really feel you're just ignoring it, and so we're in a position now where uh, it's, it's going to be, uh, you know, enforcement, particularly in cases where we see things that are egregious or people that have, uh, you know, just clearly aren't getting the message. Uh, it is time to send the message that we're not fooling around. This isn't a, hey, how are you kind of situation. This is a very serious public health matter, and we need to do everything we can to uh, have people help us out. Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Centers for the uh, Hamilton, of course, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, Paul, stay well. We'll talk again next week, I'm sure. Thanks a lot, Bill. Take care. Uh, the Western situation is rather unusual. I know we've covered that extensively on the program over the last four or five days. Uh, Western University now has 28 cases. That started with five, as you may recall. We talked with uh, the London uh, Medical Officer's Health Dr. Chris Mackey a few days ago. Well, yesterday there was a presser at uh, Western University, and I'm going to get to that in a couple of seconds, but uh, remember earlier this week we had uh, London Mayor Ed Holder on the program, and he was getting pretty ticked off about this and the noncompliance, and uh, he commented about it again yesterday. But to those who are part of the problem, I cannot put it any more plainly. If this continues, you are going to kill someone. Uh, pretty direct, uh, but that's the way that Mayor Holder is when it comes to situations like this. Uh, Andrew Graham, reporter for 980 CFPL, was at the presser yesterday at Western. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Andrew, thanks for the time. Uh, things are getting out of hand. I talked to Chris, Dr. Mackey about this. I talked to Mayor Holder about this. Uh, you've gone from five initially to 28, and the stories that uh, that you've been reporting on over the last two or three days about how these numbers multiplied is, uh, is well, it's troubling, isn't it? It is very troubling, and, and for those who don't know, 28, that's about the same number of cases that London and Middlesex County had throughout the entire month of July, and now we're seeing that reported since last Friday, so very troubling to see. Well, and uh, as we talked about with Mayor Holder, I mean, you know, we, I guess there were two new night spots that were pretty much highlighted here where a lot of this stuff was going on, and uh, and, and it's a great area of town, you know, like I say, everybody knows about those crazy places down around the uh, the Richmond-Oxford area, there's some great establishments, uh, but this, you know, it's it's the students, and, and you know, they, there was stuff about them getting together, about not wearing protective equipment, about sharing uh, e-cigarettes and drinks and things of this nature, all the stuff that we're not supposed to do, uh, and it's not as if they don't understand it. I would think a hundred percent you know and um and what i'm hearing from students is you know that most of them are following the rules most of them want to stay safe but there's a, always that small group that just wants to you know they want to have that socializing experience a university experience and that's really what i'm hearing from everyone is they want to still have that experience some are knowing that they can't have that experience while others still want to pursue that so what was the what was the message from western yesterday you were there 
the message from Western, you know, is to stay home and stay safe. Um, they're moving back to what's called the phase three of the return to campus plan. So basically their on-campus gym is going to be shut down for now. Their athletics and recreation are also being suspended along with club meetings and events. So again, for those who don't know, there were still a lot of in-person gatherings happening on campus, um, obviously with social distancing measures, but those are all being canceled. So again, they're clamping down on the restrictions and then telling kids, listen, stop partying, stop going to these gatherings, stay home, stay inside, and stay with people within your social circle. I got an email just after you and I talked the other day. I saved it here. I just mean, yeah, it had to do about the student residences, and they were asking about that. I guess what their son is going to Western. Uh, how are they accommodating that? Because there's usually two, three, or sometimes four uh, students in every one of those residences now. How, how are they accommodating social distancing there? So they've actually reduced capacity in the residences. So it's about three-quarters capacity right now. So some people that would usually have three roommates only have two roommates and the like. And with the residences, you know, it's a lot easier to contact trace because you have people that have to check in. They have to check sure. out of the residences. Um, so there are it's reduced capacity. But as we know right now, there actually is a student in residence who is uh, who had tested positive. But what we've been told is they're living in isolation right now in residence. So they're getting their meals brought to them. They're getting whatever else, whatever else they need brought to them at that door. But they're not allowed to leave that room. It's frustrating. I understand that. I mean, obviously, with Western and Fanshawe and, and you know Hamilton, there's there's McMaster and Mohawk College and Redeemer University. Uh, and you're right. I mean, it, when you're at that age and you're you know you're looking for the socialization as much as anything else, and it's got to be frustrating for them. But I'm, I'm I'm sure the message from the the, the administration at Western is, look at we get that, but you got to play by the rules here. That's all there is to it. And the comments I think from Mayor Holder I think really underscore that. A hundred percent. And even Alan Shepard himself, the president of Western University, he said that, you know, this is his quote. He says, I'm asking all Western students to do what doesn't come naturally to young people, which is to stay home and to stay only with one or two people. So, I mean, he gets it. He gets that, you know, people want to socialize. They want to have that university experience. And you have to understand, you know, for some of these students, they come all the way from maybe even Vancouver to London just to get that experience. And now they're being told to stay inside. So, again, a bit of frustration, a bit of concern. Uh, a whole swirl of emotions going on here. And and therein lies the frustration. And I heard that from from Dr. Chris Mackey when we talked to him earlier this week, the Medical Officer of Health. Uh, pretty proud, and I think justifiably so, about the number of, of cases uh, and the, you know, the, the, the small numbers that you'd be dealing with. Actually, one of the best records, not just in Ontario, but right across the country. And to have it spike like this in one week has got to be terribly frustrating for everybody involved. 100%. And um, even one student I talked to who actually lived in summer or lived in London over the summer, you know, he had very similar emotions. You know, he was saying, you know, it was so tame in London. I could go out. I didn't feel I didn't feel concerned about going downtown. But now just two weeks into school and I don't even want to go downtown for the next few weeks because of this. And he was extremely disappointed in students. I got to quickly ask you. I got about a minute left here, and I'm, I'm catching you off guard here. But I just maybe off the top of your head, uh, elementary and secondary schools in students in London have been back for I guess about a week now. Uh, any any concerns there? Any news? Or is things are things going smoothly? You took a little longer than some of the other jurisdictions did to make sure that that the board got it right. Is it going so far so good? From what we know, it is. And I was on there for the first day of school for uh, for an elementary public school on Monday. And I remember being there and being really shocked to see all these little kids following precautions. I mean, kids as young as four years old, you know, they'd see their friends after not seeing them all summer long. And they wouldn't even hug, you know what I mean? It was really weird to see. And as of right now, we haven't heard of any, any outbreaks or anything like that. So on that level, 
we've been fairly safe. We've been fairly contained with not having cases brought up there. Good. Well, maybe they can teach the university students something, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Andrew, great reporting as always. Thanks so much for this. Uh, glad you could join us today. Thank you for having me. Take care. Andrew Graham, of course, reporter with 980 CFPL London. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Next week, Wednesday to be specific, uh, MPs get back to work. Well, most of them will anyway, uh, with the uh, throne speech and then, of course, the, uh, the next session of Parliament. Uh, it is, as we know, a minority parliament, and there's some speculation on the Hill these days that uh, the opposition parties may actually vote against the throne speech, which could force an election. Well, the prime minister says that's probably not going to happen. I do not want an election. Uh, I don't think Canadians want an election. I think Canadians want uh, politicians to work together, uh, to serve them, uh, to build a better future for them and keep them safe during this COVID crisis. I think it's um, irresponsible to say that an election would be irresponsible. Our country and our institutions are stronger than that. And if there has to be an election, we'll figure it out. Well, is there going to be one? Uh, both uh, Aaron O'Toole and uh, Jagmeet Singh, the two uh, main leaders of the opposition parties, of course, the Conservatives are the official opposition, are suggesting it's probably not a good time, although uh, Mr. Singh has said, don't, don't count it out, it still could happen. Uh, we already know, of course, that uh, the bloc has already said that they, uh, they don't want to support the government anymore, but they don't have enough votes to bring down the House. So what's going to happen? Uh, let's bring Christopher Waddell into the conversation. Uh, he is, of course, a professor in the School of Journalism and Communication at Carleton University and an expert in uh, political journalism. Chris, good to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Bill. Politicians always say they don't want an election, but we keep having them. So something goes on. <laughs> well, at some point, sometimes we have to have them according to the terms of government finished. Yeah. The minority, of course, it could be any time, but I don't think it's going to be next week, or I don't think it's going to be in the near future. Why not? Um, I think a whole bunch of reasons. Number one, in the short term, um, Mr. Blanchett's wife is, uh, has been tested and positive mm-hmm. for COVID-19. The block, part of the block, um, caucus was um, sequestered in various ways. Mr. O'Toole has just been tested. Someone in his office has COVID-19. More specifically, I think there's been a big change from the time Mr. Morneau left or was uh, or was encouraged to leave or whatever it actually happened as finance minister about a month ago when the Liberals were talking about using the um, using a throne speech to dramatically alter the um, the the post-pandemic world um, on a whole bunch of levels to try to deal with uh, a green uh, move towards more of a green economy and at the same time try and deal with a lot of the shortcomings that had emerged through COVID-19 in some of our social programs. Um, that generated a pretty negative reaction from lots of areas. Uh, people worried about the deficit increasing and some of those issues. Uh, and also, of course, we've seen something of a resurgence of COVID-19 in terms of the numbers in Toronto, uh, Peel and Ottawa, at least, and uh, and in terms of government talking more, we saw the public health officer yesterday um, w- worrying about the speed with which the infection seems to be picking up in terms of number of people being infected. So, so the logic and the talk out of Mr. Trudeau and the Liberals in the last little while has been much more about COVID-19 and not nearly as much about massive restructuring of, uh, of uh, social programs or of the post-pandemic world. Um, I don't think any of the parties are actually ready for one either. Mr. O'Toole would probably do well to spend more time introducing himself to Canadians because people still don't know a lot about him. Uh, the, the NDP is still in serious financial problems and uh, and the Bloc um, may be interested, um, but they may not be as well because the Bloc may also realize that um, uh, generally the numbers are pretty positive and the support seems to have been pretty high for the Liberals and how they've handled the pandemic. If you look at what happened in New Brunswick, the New Brunswick government recently moved from minority to majority based in part on 
what appears to be public satisfaction with how the conservatives there handled the uh, pandemic. So um, the bloc risks, if they have an election now, not getting as many seats as they have at the moment. And they would, I think, not like that. So I, I can't imagine that there's going to be one this fall. Leaving aside the issues we've talked about before, which is, are you actually going to be able to get people to canvas or working offices yeah. and doing all those things? So um, it's it's kind of fun to make the sounds, and maybe there's if there isn't much else to write about or reporters to report about, you can always ask the question. But I I would be very surprised if it actually happened. So would I, for many of the same reasons you just talked about. I, I found it was fascinating, too, uh, the way that, uh, that the Prime Minister has pivoted about this. I remember in the weeks before, and we were talking about, I know they throw our balloons up sometimes, but yeah, there was discussion, as you say, about this grandiose green plan for you know, energy renewal, et cetera, and, uh, and, a, and about a guaranteed basic income and about you know, daycare programs. And they may or may not be in some of those in there. But all of a sudden, it was COVID, COVID, COVID. I mean, I, I think he's obviously reading the tea leaves here and say that's still what's on people's minds well it's on people's minds for some pretty practical reasons one of the things you just talked about in terms of landlords worrying about rent is there uh, or tenants worrying about paying their rent and landlords receiving rent um we still don't really get much of a sense of how long uh, how long on uh, whether we're going to have a second wave whether we're going to see another lockdown um the um canada emergency response benefit comes up in a transition towards uh towards unemployment insurance, but that's not going to affect everyone necessarily because um, unemployment insurance isn't... People who are self-employed aren't covered by unemployment insurance, so there's issues to deal with all those. There's a lot of still, for all the good work that may have been done in a rush to try to keep the economy going and keep money flowing to people, um, we're now at the point where some of the decisions have to be made about what are the longer-term replacements or how do we do that in a longer-term way, and that. But doing that in the middle of an election campaign leaves the whole leaves everyone hanging for 30, 40 days, and then longer. So I, again, that doesn't seem to me to be. I, and 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 the opposition parties, if they trigger an election, could then the government could then blame them for holding up whatever plans the government might have had, or even if they didn't have plans, saying they had plans. So it's kind of you know I I, I as I said, I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, there's a, a lot of things at play here, and, and, and you're right. I mean, you know, we heard Mr. Polyarv and, and even Mr. O'Toole, I guess, at one point, uh, saying that, no, I don't think we're going to call an election here because we, we, we want to find out more about the WE scandal. Uh, sure. that, and, and, and I get that, okay? And that's that's something that they're going to continue to pound on, just as they did about SNC-Lavalin uh, last year, because they think that they're scoring points, but the, the polling indicates that Canadians are more concerned about the fact that, okay, I'm getting a check from the government now, and that's tiding me over until this crisis is over. Uh, it's, and that's not to minimize what went on with we. There are still a lot of questions that yep. need to be answered, but it's not front of mind for Canadians right now. They're more concerned about, you know, am I going to keep my job? Am my kids going to be safe in school? I mean, there's, there's other issues there, and it all surrounds covid not we yeah that's right and the other thing is i think it's important to keep in mind is that we're we're increasingly moving towards i think a, a kind of two groups in in society there was one group and it's 50 to 60 percent of people who really have not been affected very much by covid i mean yes a lot of what they a, a lot of what they want to do you know you may not be able to travel you may not go on your summer vacation those sorts of things but They've been able to keep their jobs and they've been able to work throughout the whole pandemic and are still doing that. There's another 30 to 40 percent who have been affected to varying degrees. Um, uh, they've lost work for the short term. They may have lost work permanently. That's a very large part of the population. And I think any political party, um, all political parties need to think about what can be done about that and how can those people be 
But in, in, how can those people be helped in the short term and in the longer term? What has to happen to to, to ensure that they're back in 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 where they were before as much as possible as well? Yeah, and and that's that's some of the long term planning uh, that, that yep. needs to happen and, and in this medium, and medium term and, and medium term as well. Even what's going to happen for the rest of this year? I mean, you 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 know, I, anyone I'm sure you've heard or maybe talked to people. Everyone in, in the restaurant business and some of the service industries, things have been great when the temperatures well, haven't been great, but they've been manageable when the temperature is 15, 18 degrees. But I heard it's going to be what in Hamilton um, overnight tonight, zero or around yeah, there. Yeah, it's going to be chilly. Not, yeah. much, not, not much fun for sitting out on a patio drinking beer in zero weather <laughs> or, or trying to keep a dinner warm. So, so you know, we're moving into that and, and, I think the, the people want to know what's the plan. They said, and that, it, it, and, that, and that even leaves aside the question of whether we get into another lockdown or not. That's just how do we get out of what's happened in the last little while? Yeah, we're not out of the woods yet. I mean, they keep talking about a second wave, but you know, you talk to medical officers of health, and they're saying we're not finished the first one yet. Uh, yeah, you know, it, so it, 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 we're still the, the ramifications of that. Yeah, let alone the schools and where we're going to go with schools and all those issues. So. I think, yeah, people's minds are, I mean, New Brunswick, New Brunswick election happened. Um, I think that the turnout was a little bit down. The numbers I saw was down, down a bit in terms of the number of people who voted. But New Brunswick, um, although it had the lockdown and everything else, has had very little real impact of, uh, of many cases of COVID-19. And other parts of the country aren't in, in, uh, in a similar situation. So. There was a poll that we were just talking about earlier in the program here. It was uh, done by Ipsos uh, for C- for Global News. Uh, and, sh- and it showed the Liberals still have a, a, a significant lead over the Conservatives when it comes to popular opinion. And that's on a national basis. But they broke it down province by province. And, and, and still a significant lead in Ontario and even in Quebec uh, ahead of the bloc, which is one of the reasons why I guess Mr. Blanchet better sec- give second thoughts about you know the idea that he's not mm-hmm. going to support the government. Uh because we've seen that happen before, though, haven't we, Chris? Where minority governments get the, the the feet pulled out from under them, and they get reelected as a majority government. It's happened more than once. Yes, and uh, and it's it's also happened sometimes though when governments decide to have a short the government decides to have an election, they end up not doing very well. Oh so yeah, it's it's um, but I think the the um, in a time like this, I think there's as I said, uh, the opinion surveys that have been done generally suggest that there's widespread approval and widespread support for the public health system and and widespread support for politicians who've actually um, decided that the public health officials are the best people to make decisions rather than the politicians. And the, gener- and the Liberals have generally got pretty good. They've opened up a lead over the other parties in, in polling, in part because of how people felt they've handled the situation up to the moment. So so I think for the opposition parties, there's a bit of a risk in in trigger an election when there doesn't appear to be widespread dissatisfaction with what's happened up to now even on the political level i mean uh, and and this is somewhat amazing i guess to a lot of uh, observers uh the, the trudeau government's actually done a pretty decent job of building alliances with a number of the premiers that you know before this whole thing started uh were sworn enemies i mean doug ford's a great example of that but you know I, I, jason kenny's on talking terms with christia freeland now and who knew that was going to happen so that that animosity that usually you know uh, acts as a precursor to an election doesn't seem to be there yep although interestingly we've got four conservative premiers or well three conservatives and and mr and uh, mr legault who's kind of conservative i see um, in Quebec, yeah. um, meeting in Ottawa today and wouldn't make noises about, um, about, um, the federal government and what the federal government should be doing to helping them, helping them, et cetera, which is, in, which will be interesting in itself because BC, 
British Columbia announced a $2 billion recovery plan yesterday without going to the federal government and asking the federal government for help. And, and provinces, the Liberals may remind the federal government, may remind the provinces that provinces have taxing powers too. And if they've got financial problems, maybe they should be looking at their own tax system before coming to Ottawa. But, but coming to Ottawa and asking for help from the federal government or demanding help from the federal government is a, a it's a pretty time-worn tactic in provincial legislatures across the country. There's a, another set of meetings going on today, too. We were told that uh, the Prime Minister is actually going to meet uh, with at least two of the opposition leaders today. Uh, I, I guess it's going to be done virtually, not on face-to-face, obviously, yeah. as you say, because of the isolation. But both Mr. O'Toole and Mr. Singh, uh, uh, the, the line here is that to get input into the throne speech. Now, I, I don't know if there's too many gaps left to fill in the throne speech right now, but uh, is, is it just a, a courtesy to extend to the opposition leaders to have that conversation? I think it's probably a wise thing to do in a minority government. Um, you may actually try to get a, if it was Mr. Trudeau may actually try to get a sense of, of what and where the opposition parties are thinking about various issues. I don't know what he'll decide to present to them. Um, I think the idea that they're going to be uh, have much of a role in deciding what's in the throne speech is probably not going to happen. Um, <laughs> governments tend not to do that, but but it's it's a good. If you're in a minority government, um, it's always a good political strategy to have a sense of what the opposition parties are thinking, because that gives you some idea as to where you want to position your policies to ensure that, that you have the support of at least somebody when you're taking them to the House. And so doing doing that sort of consultation and keeping them informed, and they've got they've probably got some good questions to ask him, too, about where he thinks things are going, and, and um, it's it's... In a minority parliament, it's always better to talk than not talk. So, but I don't think that um, that 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 at this point, as I think your point is correct, that at this point the throne speech is largely done, and and whatever the opposition parties have to say will more be um, to ensure the Liberals are prepared for, to defend the issues they want to defend, rather than just to give the opposition parties a role in deciding what it actually is going to be in the throne speech. But a scenario like this, where there seems to be at least a, a general level of satisfaction across the country uh, for the way the government's handling things, do you, you take this opportunity? Though, that the, the, the polls say, still say that Alberta and Saskatchewan and the oh, yeah. are still much um, aren't le- aren't much less on. Oh, that's going to be way too many negatives. <laughs> we still would love to see the Conservatives in power rather than the Liberals. Yeah, well, the, those three provinces have never been big fans of the Trudeau family or the Liberal Party, for that matter, Correct. too. Uh, so th- that's not surprising at all. But is this the time to make a bold move to throw something into a, a throne speech and into a, a, a budget, which is going to have to happen eventually, too? Uh, something like a daycare program? I, I don't know about the basic income. I know they've talked about that, but the, a national daycare program might be something that, well, it's certainly going to get support from the NDP, but possibly from the Bloc as well, because they have a variation on that already in Quebec. Yeah, I think you'll see. I, I mean, that was promised by Mr. Kretchen back in 1993. Yeah. It was then um, almost introduced by Mr. Martin in about 2005. So it's been floating around for a long period of time. I certainly think that's something that you w- might well see in the throne speech in terms of some sort of movement on, because obviously um, among the things the pandemic has demonstrated is how critical childcare is, whether it's schools or others. If you want women to be in the economy or you want... Um, uh, Women or or one members of families in the economy, and and um, that may there may be different views on some of that. So I wouldn't be surprised to see something like that. There would um, another thing that was interesting in um, uh, the NDP is obviously pushed on pharmacare. The, this, yeah. this 
government had talked about moving towards that. We haven't seen what that is at the moment. I think you'll also probably see some movements towards housing on, on housing issues because we've also seen some of the problems that flow out of um, out of um, the pandemic come from a lot of people being in tight spaces and more people living in, in, in small accommodation than perhaps because it's too expensive. So we may see some movements on housing in urban areas. Um, probably you'll also see things like... Um, um, the return to, to programs that come and go with changes of government in terms of retrofitting of buildings to make them more energy efficient, maybe retrofitting of homes to reduce, um, to make them more energy efficient, which again plays a little bit to the green agenda, but not the dramatic way that, um, that had been discussed, um, a month or so ago by Mr. Trudeau. So I think it's, it's more sort of those things. Uh, another thing to look for and to see what happens is if anybody, there's been other people who talk that the federal government should get involved in um, long-term care for the elderly. Or whether that's going to happen, or not, I suspect probably not, because that's a provincial field. Of, uh, of exactly, yeah, but, stepping on toes. Chris, yeah, we've got to jump in. We're just about out of time okay. on this one. Uh, we'll find out Wednesday. I'm sure we'll have a discussion about that after we uh, see how, just what they're going to present. Thanks, as always, for this. Great talking with you again. Have a great weekend. Yeah, thanks Take care. Professor Christopher Waddell, of course, at uh, Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some rent happiness for renters, because this has been a very frustrating situation because of COVID-19. You may recall that uh, around the time of the shutdown in the springtime, the Ford government announced a moratorium on evictions. Uh, but they're still concerned about rents and people being forced out of their apartments. And, uh, well, we've seen the end result of that, of course. There uh, there are tent cities popping up. There's a number of them in Hamilton, in London, and, and many other cities around here. Uh, oftentimes, those are people that just didn't have a place to live or did and got booted out because they couldn't pay the rent anymore. Well, the government uh, made an announcement yesterday that we hope is going to address that. Here's what the Premier had to say. For the vast majority of the 1.7 million renters across the province, this means your rent will not increase, I'm going to repeat that, will not increase between January 1st to December 31st of next year. So uh, let's uh, peel this back and, and see just how this is going to have an impact on the problem, the crisis really, uh, that we have with renters. Uh, and joining us to talk about this is Karima Syed, who is a lawyer and notary public, who's a, a very strong voice, of course, uh, for the rights of renters. Uh, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. What, what, give me your reaction to what you heard from the, the Premier yesterday. I think I'm less optimistic than Premier Ford about the impact that this will have, practically speaking. Um, and in some ways, I feel like he's relying on collective amnesia because this is the same government that scrapped rent control altogether for new bills um, as of November 2018. So a temporary rent freeze um, on a yearly increase does nothing to address the underlying issues and pressures that renters face in this market. There's a problem here, I think, with, uh, with, with a, a knowledge about what's happening. Unless you are a renter, uh, I guess a lot of us don't pay much attention to this, but your point's well taken. Uh, the the average rent in the province of Ontario, and of course it varies wildly from a place like Hamilton to Windsor or, or any place else, uh, but it's it's very simple to put it, uh, the, the tag of unaffordable on this. I don't know how people can afford to pay the kind of money that they're being asked to pay. It's not easy. It's not easy. As a renter myself, uh, it's it's a struggle. And, and I say that as someone who is gainfully employed and, you know, I have the benefit of family and support if I were to need it. Um, and 
you know, if, if I can backtrack for just a second, um, sure. maybe to explain these forces. Uh, yeah. So in Ontario, um, the majority of units are covered by rent control, meaning that from one year to the next, the landlord can only increase the rent by a guideline amount that's determined by the province. Um, however, when a tenant is displaced from a unit or moves out and moves to a new unit altogether, and that place becomes vacant, the landlord is able to charge whatever they want. So there's a vacancy decontrol. And that same vacancy decontrol also applies uh, across the board to new builds, meaning um, new buildings from, like I say, November 2018. Um, and those units typically, like there's no limit on, on how much a, a landlord can increase the rent one year to the next. So what this does is tenants who have been somewhere for a long time benefit from their rent control that's attached to their specific tenancy. But if or when they move, they are facing the new market rate, which is significantly higher. So in some ways, this rent freeze actually enhances the financial incentive that landlords have to push out sitting tenants because then they have this beautiful empty unit that they can charge whatever they want. And a wait list, how, how long to, to want that? Because I mean, let's face it, there's not a whole lot of product out there, is there? No, there, there's a lack of supply. Um, I mean, I think that there is some hope that the new regulations for Airbnb will uh, correct the supply-demand issue to some extent. Um, but really, the problem is we, we don't have enough purpose-built rentals. And, um, you know, moving from one tenancy to the next, uh, it's very difficult for people to stay in the same communities um, and in some cases even in the same city because of, of the discrepancy between a rent-controlled unit and, and the market rate. And by the way, municipalities have to share some of the blame for that because I know here at Hamilton, and I'm assuming from some of the stats that I remember from my days on, in politics, uh, that the, oftentimes, uh, you know, developers would come forward and say, like, you know, I, I'm not going to build an apartment building, I'm going to build condos because there's more money in that for me. And they would readily say, well, that's new development. Sure, we can do that. Bring it on. Uh, but that, that that really limits the the, the, the amount of, of rental space that's available in any one community. And it's really coming back to haunt us now, isn't it? I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Well, and, and there were the conversions, too, as you remember, Carmia, you know, where, the, where some landlords actually said, I'm turning my apartment into a condo unit, which, again, reduces the stock. It does. And, you know, people need somewhere to live. And the longer we continue with this charade of uh, rental property as an investment, as your nest egg, and divorce it from the reality that housing is not a typical commodity and people need a roof over their head to survive, um, you're, you're going to continue having these problems, and, and the, the gap will just widen further and further and further. So how do we address something like this? And I know you've, I've, you've, we've had previous discussions about this, and uh, you're right. I mean, the, the idea of a freeze is fine, but to, <laughs> that doesn't help anybody who's in a precarious position right now uh, or to maintain that position. I mean, you know, it's great to know that, you know, the rent isn't going to go up, but if you've had trouble making payments and, uh, you know, how, how long the SERB benefit is going to continue to go on, uh, we, you know, the, the long-term planning here gets tossed out the window. You're really living month to month, aren't you? Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, it's hard to say what happens, kind of, and that's not accounting for the regular um, variables or wild cards in life. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's very hard to have, I don't think that there is a bullet uh, or silver bullet solution. Um, one suggestion that I would have is that 
Um, we, we really take to heart that there should be no evictions due to non-payment during COVID. Um, there should be subsidies that are introduced um, or some other means of uh, reconciling um, so that, you know, landlords get paid, but tenants aren't at risk of being kicked out. Um, and, and, you know, there's, I think, 6,000 or so applications that were filed from the start of the pandemic until now, simply for non-payment of rent. And the fact that Bill 184, which recently passed, um, speeds up the process of evicting tenants who entered into repayment plans in good faith, um, you know, that's hastening, I think, the outcome that we don't want to see. So there shouldn't be any evictions because of, of COVID. And we saw that that was the reality, wasn't it? I mean, they did put a freeze on evictions at the beginning of the lockdown, but it had an expiry date. And as soon as it did, there was a plethora of applications to the to the board all of a sudden to say, okay, I want to boot these people out. Uh, and oftentimes the, the, the tenants uh, don't have the, the financial wherewithal or the legal wherewithal to do much in the way of, of fighting back in a situation like that. And the tenants who are most vulnerable to this are the ones who... Um, are, are long-standing tenants and have uh, relatively low rents, and, and accordingly, there's an incentive for landlords to push them out first. Um, and tenants with language barriers, with disabilities, um, with fixed incomes because they're on ODSP. Um, and, you know, we should remember that people on ODSP, their cost of living may have increased, but they weren't eligible for the same CERB. Um, and even the top-ups to that were, were very slim. Um, so, really, we're leaving behind um, the most vulnerable people. Let's let's talk about uh, about the situation that these people find themselves in right now, and 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 the predicament uh, that they're dealing with on a daily basis. And and as you say, because of their financial circumstance, some of them have lost work or been laid off, whatever the case might be, uh, because of COVID, uh, and they can't make those payments. Uh, a rent freeze is really inconsequential to them. It's a matter of whether they're going to find the money to come back. But uh, the you're I'm glad you brought that other point up about the landlords themselves. I mean, the pressure has to be immense. I and mean, let's face it, the people own those buildings because they think that, you know, that's how they make their money or they think that's going to be their nest egg, their retirement nest egg, whatever. But if you've got a tenant that's paying 1100 bucks for a one-bedroom apartment and you know that you could get probably 1000 bucks more a month for that unit, the temptation's got to be overwhelming to say, I've got to force that person out because I want that money. It's just economic sense, right? And, and you know, we all are, are rational actors in theory. Um, but but that's, that's the problem. Um, housing is not a normal commodity. And when we create those incentives, we, uh, you know, are, are setting people up for, for failure and, and for homelessness um, in, in many cases. And when people do become homeless, there aren't really uh, meaningful, valuable supports. I know in Toronto, um, we have um, some of the encampments that, that uh, in different parts of the city, and we have police being sent out to slash the tent. So it's, you know, it, it's really cruel. Yeah, and well, similar situation. The debate's going on in Hamilton about what to do with the encampments as well. And, and, you know, some pretty strong opinions on both sides of this. But uh, what gets lost in that debate oftentimes is the fact that these people are homeless. That's why they're there. This is not a fun outing for them. Uh, you know, if you boot them out of there, where are they going to go? Uh, it's not as if there are units available. I know that uh, that the municipalities have tried uh, to find accommodation for some of these people, but there just isn't enough accommodation for everybody who's in those locations. And as you say, it's not just one location in each city now. There are multiple uh, encampments because of the number of people that are in this precarious situation. 
And obviously, there's a public health element to that. Um, sure. We saw the new um, directive from the province, um, so, so I think that's going to be a problem. And, and just to return to an earlier point you made about the financial pressures faced by landlords, um, I, I think that, that that shouldn't get lost in the conversation either. Um, and from my perspective, um, some of the relief that has been offered from banks um, is, is totally inadequate, and it's somewhat arbitrary. And those pressures should be applied upward because for the decades that banks have been profiting from mortgages and, and making their money this way, um, some of that has to trickle back to the homeowners and then down to the tenants. Um, the pressure shouldn't be placed directly downward to the tenants. We should be focusing on what our governments and our financial institutions can do to help with this crisis. Uh, are you at all optimistic that uh, that the government, uh, this is the federal government now, since the throne speech is coming up on Wednesday, uh, is going to address this? They've been talking about doing it for about 25 years now. I, I mean, I'm not heartened considering that throughout all of the COVID sort of emergency addresses, um, renters were barely mentioned um, and, and we you know, heard more about commercial units than, than residential. Despite whatever jurisdictional issues, I think the federal government has an interest in ensuring that people have adequate housing. Um, having said that, there has also been a lot of organizing and advocacy um, that, that's come up over the past few months. So I don't think it's an easy issue to ignore. And if it's not addressed, the federal government will hear about that. And, and I know the simple solution, and it's not, the, as you say, the silver bullet, but part of it is, is we simply need more housing stock. We need more affordable housing and rental units. I mean, uh, I, I don't know what the stats are in Toronto. I, I know it's just about as bad, but I think it's about a five- to seven-year wait here for affordable units in Hamilton. Uh, they don't turn over that often, and, and people are in a very, very difficult situation uh, waiting for that. And it's a lot worse uh, in, in different parts of the province, of course. And it all comes down to the fact that, you know, there's no incentive uh, for that. Uh, we've talked about the renters and we've talked about the uh, uh, the landlords themselves that own those properties. The other element to this are the developers. I mean, we need them to get into the game here. And I've talked to a few of them over the years, Karima, and they're basically saying there's nothing in it for us, you know, uh, unless the government can go out and say, I'll make it worth your while, which they've done with other sectors to try to stimulate the, that part of the economy. They've got to do the same thing when it comes to rental units as well. I, I agree. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, it's, comes down to what we prioritize and how we go about achieving those outcomes and uh, people need somewhere to live that's just a fundamental basic human need a human right and so because there is that right element to it um, I I think the government should get more hands-on more involved and and ensure that this supply is, is increased. I was surprised. We had tried to get the Housing Affairs Minister, Mr. Clark, on the program today. He was unavailable. Maybe next week you can grab him on. But that was one of the questions I wanted to ask him about was the moratorium, of course, on evictions, which I agree with you should have been maintained and should be maintained all the way through until we can put this COVID crisis behind us. And who knows how long that's going to take. Uh, but that's that's the short-term solution. That's an immediate solution. Uh, but we need to address the longer-term solution as well. Uh, the problem we have here is governments don't usually think in terms of, of three, four, or five years down the road. They're usually just thinking about the next election and what can they do to try to enhance their, their, their situations in that. Uh, we've got to demand more from governments at both federal and provincial levels to try to get involved in this. Um, 
it's it's been about I guess since the late 1980s really hasn't it that that both governments decided because of austerity programs to back away from their their commitment to public housing and affordable housing and they really haven't done much I mean they've paid lip service to it but they haven't really made the commitment to it that needs to be made and and it's unfortunate because we're one of the few countries in the G7 that don't have that kind of a national policy and that national support it's uh, you know it's it's disheartening and the cynical perspective, as you allude to, is, you know, we, our governments think in shorter-term cycles because they're thinking about the next election and what will deliver sort of short-term positives or create buzz that, that we get voted back into office. And, and that's not the approach our, our public servants should be taking. Um, they should be really having a more long-term focus. How is this going to affect, you know, our children, our children's children, further than that, um, that's the, the attitude that, that I would hope, um, you know, our, our politicians take. And, and it's just, in my lifetime at least, that's never been the case. Well, I mean, there's so many problems, and I get that. And, you know, government is swamped, uh, but, I mean, that's their job to, to address these things and try to do something about it. Uh, there's the, the issue of poverty, which, by the way, is, is intricately attached, of course, to, to housing and affordable housing, uh, and so many other things that are going on. But, but you know, the first step in getting any of those or all of those solved is put a roof over somebody's head. I mean, as long as they're out and they're in the street, and, it's you know, it's September, it's going to get colder pretty soon. It's already getting chilly at night here in southern Ontario. Uh, until they do that, uh, the other problems are only going to get worse. It's actually, like, I mean, very expensive to be homeless, um, if, you, if you think about it, because um, you, you can't uh, sort of stock up in, with things the way you would. Like, your, your, your very existence is precarious. The few items that you have are, are always at risk. Um, and what you say, like, it, it's, housing is in the puzzle piece of stability, um, very central, because especially if you're dealing with, under, like, a mental health issues or addiction or, uh, and the list goes on and on, um, without housing, those problems are only going to get worse. And then it bleeds out and, and affects other members of society. So really, if we take a more holistic and encompassing and inclusive approach, um, it serves everyone better in the end. It's just we, we like, have to take that perspective. Well, we'll see what the government's going to do, the federal government anyway, and uh, that'll be Wednesday, and then the reaction, of course, from the uh, the provincial governments as well. Karima, thank you, as always, for the time today. Uh, keep up the good work and be that strong voice. They certainly do need to hear that at Queen's Park and on Parliament Hill. Appreciate all the help you're giving us. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.